You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. If you don't know me, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. It is my uh, joy and privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning. Um, And if you're a guest, I'll just reiterate the kind welcome that Reed already gave you. We really are glad that you're here. Um, And and it's our hope and, and our belief, really, ultimately, that the the church is first and foremost a people to belong to rather than simply an event to attend on a Sunday. And so I would, I would highly encourage you to take any of those methods of connecting uh, that he put before you, whether it's the Connect card or coming to pray with us tomorrow night or, uh, or joining us for that quarterly covenant membership class. And, and I would emphasize that, that one purely because we only do it four times a year. And so uh, it's a great opportunity for uh, you to come and have some extended time where you can come and ask any questions that maybe haven't been addressed on a Sunday morning or or in a neighborhood parish if you've attended one. But so I'll be there and some of our staff and some of our leaders and members will also be there as well to just kind of help you get a fuller picture of what it looks like to belong to the people here. And so, um, yeah, please do join us for that. Um, again, that's on the 18th, I believe. It's a Saturday from 9 to noon. Uh, with that said, let's, let's jump in uh, to our current sermon series. We, we started last week um, discussing... Uh, what are essentially the, the, the sort of five large, large bucket theological principles that, um, that really drove uh, what was the Protestant Reformation. And the reason that we started that last week in particular was because um, on, on Tuesday of this past week, the 31st, while many of us were probably celebrating Halloween, there was also a 500th anniversary of Martin Luther posting his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And in doing that, Uh, He began what was a serious and, and I believe, genuine, honest attempt at discussion and reform uh, within the church. And uh, this was a a major event, not only in church history, like uh, not only a major event for Christians, but a major event in in world history. And so it's worth us, I believe, going back to uh, sort of what what was taking place in that time and why these five theological principles in particular bubbled up to the surface of this Protestant Reformation. And last week we talked about this, uh, this principle of, of sola scriptura, that our, our ultimate authority is the Word of God and the Word of God alone. And the reason that that was one of the major points of debate during the Reformation is because there was essentially a question of authority at hand. A question of authority in that, were the Christians of their day to believe that their highest authority was the church and tradition, or was it God's word? And the reformer's response to that question was this idea of sola scriptura, or scripture alone. Another major point of debate during the Reformation was the question of the method of salvation. How are Christians saved? Does man initiate and participate in his forgiveness and salvation? Or does God initiate and complete the salvation of sinners so that the whole work is attributed to his sovereign grace? In in response to Erasmus, a a, a theologian at the time, in in, in response to his diatribe, Luther wrote, the bondage of the will, which articulated the reformer's view of salvation by grace alone, or sola 
gratia. The Roman church taught that mass is a sacrifice which is truly propitiatory in their own words. And that by the mass, God grants us grace and the gift of penitence. And he remits our faults and even our enormous sins. And so the mass played a central role in how the Roman church viewed salvation. And it was this workspace system that extended beyond the mass into things like indulgences and pilgrimages and penances and fastings and purgatory and mariolatry that had confused the church at the time. And so Luther's writings and teaching in this particular principle of grace alone challenged Rome in insisting that a sinner is not only unable to provide salvation for themselves, but they're unable even to take hold of that salvation on their own, that salvation is by grace alone. And so we'll talk about that and we'll investigate whether or not that is something that's biblically founded. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together as your people. And we do thank you, God, this morning that we are gathered together by grace alone. Father, that all of us this morning have have entered into this room in one of two states, either in need of grace or having been given grace. And so, Father, for those of us who are Christians this morning who have been given grace in Jesus, I pray, Father, that we would rejoice and celebrate and be glad. And Lord, for those of us who are in this room who are not Christians and who need your grace, I pray, Father, that they would see that your hands are open wide to them. Lord, that there is no depth of darkness that you have not already overcome in the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And we can now come to you because you are meek and lowly in heart. And you invite us, Lord, even now to come and to cast our cares upon you because your burden is light. And so, God, we're, we're glad to be together. We're glad to be underneath the teaching of your gracious word. And so, Father, send your spirit to teach us all the more what it means to be a people who have been saved by grace. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that, that I want to do each week as we in, unpack these uh, five theological principles of the Reformation is to first go to God's word. Now, uh, for many reasons, that's probably somewhat obvious to us, but, um, but if we really believe, like we said last week, that God's word is our ultimate authority, then we should allow it to tell us what is true, right? Rather than us bringing our truth to the Bible and seeing where it conveniently lines up. But then the second reason that I want to first go to God's word is because I want to clearly show that these theological principles are in fact biblical principles. And so the Reformation was less about innovation so much as it was about going back to a foundation. And here's what I mean by that. When I say that the Reformation was less about innovation than it was about returning to a foundation, what what Martin Luther and the other reformers of his day were trying to do was nothing novel. This was not a a new way to do church, a new way to see church, a new way to see Jesus or his word, right? Um, Neither Jesus nor the apostles or the church fathers before this time 
would have seen this as revolutionary. They would have seen it as what they had always been saying from the beginning. And so where in the Bible does it tell us that salvation is by grace alone? Well, we just, we just read part of it in Ephesians chapter 1. And so I'm going to read it one more time. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, if, if you didn't black out after reading the P word, predestined, um, then you also saw two, two times where, where God uses the word grace, where Paul enumerates that this work that God has done in history that we are thanking him for is primarily an, a, a work, an exhibition, a display of his grace. Right? According to Paul, we see two things here. One, we're chosen by God to be adopted through Jesus to the praise of His glorious grace. That, that when we think about what God has done to us, when we think about His blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, when we think about His choosing us, when we think about His adoption of us, all of that should lead us to praise Him for what? His glorious grace. So according to Paul, God's adoption of us by no merit of our own, but rather because of and through Jesus, necessarily leads us to praise His grace. Meaning that the attribute of God that is most on display in His adopting work of His people is His grace. That that is, that is the nature of God, that is the character of God that is most on display in His saving work is His gracious character how so well let's take a look at the definition of grace right grace is most commonly defined as unmerited favor and in this case in ephesians it is the unmerited favor of god but that definition doesn't really go far enough a theologian named william newman put it this way he said grace is the free favor of god conferred upon the unworthy in that it's not only favor that we haven't earned, it's favor that we've actively disearned, right? And Ephesians will go on to tell us in chapter 2 that those of us who receive God's grace are not merely helpless sinners who are undeserving, but that we are in fact active, hostile rebels against God with bad hearts and with bad records. And so when we talk about God's grace being glorious, it is because we not only didn't earn his kindness, but because we also did actively earn his wrath, and he chose to show us grace anyway. But it's not just that. 
Paul goes on to tell us that not only are we chosen by God to be adopted through Jesus to the praise of his glorious grace, but that in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, that that's how we're forgiven of our sins, and that that happened according to or in step with his grace, the riches of his grace. That God, in forgiving us, in redeeming us by the blood of his son Jesus, was acting in accordance with the riches of grace that are stored within him. That this is who God is. He is gracious and in extending to us salvation in our adoption, in our redemption, in our forgiveness of our sins, in all of the spiritual blessings that he's given to us in Christ, that what is chiefly on display, the method by which those things have come to us, is the method of grace. And so God's grace is not only glorious, but it's abundant We've been adopted, we've been redeemed through Jesus, especially in his shed blood, and this was done according to the riches of his grace. It is grace that led God to give Christ perfect life, undeserved death, and victorious resurrection to us who are currently leading imperfect lives that are deserving of death and only death. And so it becomes quite clear to us, even just in these few verses from Ephesians, that salvation is indeed by grace alone. That it is grace alone that has brought this forgiveness to us. That has brought us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And so just like last week, we could easily close the book and go home right now, which might sound great to some of us. But again, I want us to see that this verse is not an isolated biblical concept, but rather a theme that is woven throughout the entire Bible, that God has always acted graciously towards his people, that God has always used grace, operated in grace towards us. That has always been God's method towards his people. And so if we go to Genesis chapter 3, We see this moment um, that happens where we know that God in Genesis 1 and 2 creates the earth. He creates it perfect. He looks at all of it. He sees that it's good. Man and woman in the garden enjoying not only relationship with God, relationship with one another and the creation around them. They're stewarding it well. They're, They're enjoying it for all that it is. And God gave to them one simple rule, one rule, so that they, they would be reminded that there is an established hierarchy in this new creation, that God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, that He does in fact own it all, that He is over them, He is authority over them. And they can't, they can't even get the one. And so they disobey God, and we find them having disobeyed God, hiding in the garden in verse 6 of chapter 3, and this is what it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And get this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then in verse 21, this is what we see happen. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, many of us in this moment, I think, uh, have maybe tended to look at this portion of scripture and we go, man, like it was just one, it was just one screw up. This isn't, this is God being overly punitive. And I would contend to you that actually when, when, when we look at this, we're, we're, we're seeing God's grace on display. We're seeing God's grace on display in a particular way, in fact. Because what you'll notice in, is that in this moment, according to the rules that God had already established, and that, like there was only one, right? You can't be like, I, I forgot the one rule, right? Many of us don't have the Ten Commandments memorized, but like the don't eat that, we can like, there's enough up here to, to process that and, and, and keep it stored, right? And they know, like he's told them, eat of it and you will surely die. And so in this moment, God has every right to just mission abort, done. And yet, what does God do? Look, forbidden fruit was still fresh on our first parents' lips when God stepped into the garden and lavished undeserved favor on them at the very moment when Adam and Eve deserved a death that never ends. God clothed them with the skin of a beast and promised them a son who would triumph and whose triumph would grind the serpent's skull into the ground. What you'll notice in this moment is that the grace of the sovereign God did not wait for them to make the first move. In fact, their first move was not to press in towards God, but rather to run away from Him. And God pursued them into the garden. And when He found them, He clothed them. I don't know if you've ever been naked in public, and if, if you have, I don't want to know about it. But, um, but what a vulnerable feeling, right? And I mean, in that moment, if someone tosses you a towel, it's a saving grace, right? Here's the God of the universe. And he's clothing the naked. He's 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 covering them in their vulnerability. He's he's providing for them in that moment. Surely this is grace. This is grace on display, and we see this grace displayed on every page of our scriptures, brothers and sisters, even, yes, in the Old Testament, right? God extends his grace to Abraham, even though Abraham fails to trust his promises and sleeps with his servant girl instead of Sarah. 
and has a son by her instead of by Sarah. God graciously gives to Abraham Isaac, a son by Sarah, even though he had not trusted in his promises. God extends his grace to Israel, who fail time and time again to be the holy people that he set them apart to be. It's only grace that, that God gives Israel the law after they worship other gods. It's only God's grace that he gives Israel his presence as they wander in the desert because of their sin. It's only God's grace that gives them water from the rock and manna from heaven, even though they're complaining every time they eat and drink it. God's grace extends to David, who failed to be the righteous king that God set him up to be. It goes on and on and on. The English term grace appears 169 times in the King James Version and 204 times if we include its derivatives. Grace is a theme within the Bible and God's proactive grace to us in particular is a theme in God's word. These people that God has shown grace to are not people who are actively earning His grace. They're not people who've apologized enough to receive His grace. They're not people who've repented enough. They're not people who've changed enough to receive His, gr to receive his grace. They're changed because they receive His grace. And so it's evident throughout the Bible that God's people are saved by God's grace being extended to them. And that grace is most clearly seen and experienced for us in the person and in the work of Jesus. And so if salvation is by grace alone, what happens when we compromise? What happens when we disbelieve what the Bible is telling us about how salvation comes to us, about how we're made right with God, about how we're adopted into His family, about how we're redeemed. What happens when we don't believe that salvation is in fact by grace alone? Well, I would argue that, it, that when we compromise, we end up losing what makes Christianity distinct from every other major world religion. You see, the unfortunate reality is that compromise on this particular theology, this particular belief, this particular truth of God's word um, is not all that unfamiliar to us. The unfortunate reality is that many of us give God and Jesus a tip of the hat, but we don't tend to think of him as high and holy and ourselves as rebellious sinners in need of grace. We tend to think of God as the happy butler who, like Bruce Wayne's Alfred, serves us and deals with our eccentricities because we're doing a lot of good. But the truth is that you are not the hero you want or the hero you need, much less Gotham. One, one popular television preacher says this on his website. He says on his website that a personal relationship with Jesus is humanity's only hope. And yet, despite that tip of his hat to Jesus, his messages are dominated by the talk of the butler God. As he tells it, God is capable of improving our lives by releasing more of his favor. But not until we do our part. 
And that until we do our part, God can't do much of anything at all. God is waiting on you, he proclaims. You don't get the grace unless you step out. You have to make the first move. In other words, whether or not you receive God's grace depends largely on you. And God doesn't do his part until you do everything you can do, and he sees your resolve, and then he'll make up the difference. Like, just do your best, and I'll grade you on the curve. And when we see Jesus like that, and when we understand God like that, then the, 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 then the Jesus and the God of the Bible become no different than Allah or Buddha or the Tao. If you do enough, you'll be acceptable. If you put enough effort forward, you'll earn God's favor. And this line of thinking is wildly popular. In fact, I would argue that it is at the, at the bottom of every worldview, secular or religious. If you follow the rules, then you'll get what you've earned. The Bible and Christianity are the only world religion that instead of having a God who by their virtue escaped our tragedy and now shows us the way, has a God who by his virtue entered into our tragedy and now carries us on the way. Other gods invite us up. Jesus came down. Other gods triumph. Jesus was crucified. Other gods demand our groveling. Jesus invites us to come to him because he's meek and lowly in heart. Other gods write out the rules and demand we keep them. Jesus wrote the rules and kept them for us so that we'd be able to keep them. You see, where there is not true grace, there is no gospel. And where there is no gospel, there is no life-changing joy to be found. There is no power unto salvation, as Romans 1.16 would say. That, after all, is why Paul, a, a, a scholar by, by any standard, right, a, a man well-known in the philosophies and religions of his day, said this about the gospel, that he's not ashamed of it because it is the power of God unto salvation. And this gospel, brothers and sisters, is primarily characterized by the fact that it comes to us by grace and not by our works. And so when we compromise on grace alone, then we lose what makes us distinct. We lose, as Jesus says, we lose our saltiness. And what good is salt that isn't salty? But what happens when we believe? What happens when we, and, and I'm, I'm not saying just like, just on a, uh, on a theoretical level, it, like in our headspace, we say, I believe in grace alone, but what happens when we functionally believe? What happens when, when that, that, that truth that's sitting up here makes its way down into our heart and expresses itself through our limbs? What happens when we really believe that our salvation has come to us by grace alone. I think there's a million things that happen, but I'm going to give us two. Well, the first one is this. 
the necessary outworking of salvation by grace alone is that we can be truly free. We can be truly free. Listen, the reality is that for many of us, we believe in Jesus, but the joy of his grace has been lost in the shuffle. We say yes to far too many tasks, scrambling after the slightest hints of praise in the faces around us. We fall short of others' expectations, and we replay our failures again and again. On our better days, our successes almost seem to balance out our screw-ups. On our darker days, we suspect that our shortcomings have forever skewed everyone's opinion of us, even God's. And in that moment, we begin to plot and we begin to plan what it will take to regain God's good favor. And in the end, what happens is we're left with calendars that are full, but souls that are empty. And it's because we're still captive to the delusion that what we do determines who we are. When we believe that salvation is by grace alone, we can wake up from that delusion to the wonderful freedom of knowing that we are who we are because God did what He did. We're adopted. We're redeemed, as Ephesians told us, because God chose us. We're freed from the expectations of others, including our own, and alive to the joy of being who we're created to be, sons and daughters. It says very little about us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. That's because salvation is truly from outside of us. And when we believe that, we can be truly free. And here's the second thing that happens. When we believe that salvation is by grace alone, we can live in glorious community. We can be truly free and we can live in glorious community. And I think that in order to live in the kind of community we want to live in, we first have to be free. But here's what that freedom does among us. Not only inside of us as individuals, but among us as God's people. When we realize that we're not captive to the expectations of others, we can stop trying to hold people accountable to our expectations of them. How much disappointment would that rescue us from? And how much weight would that set other people free from? You see, salvation by grace puts us in a particular posture. It reminds us that we haven't earned God's grace, so we shouldn't have to make others earn our grace. It reminds us that God was so intimately focused on the needs of others that He willingly sent His own to serve those needs. So we are freed to focus on the needs of others around us. We can begin to create a community where our value to the group is not predicated on the perceived amount of value we bring to the group. When we believe that salvation is by grace alone, it reminds us that grace is God's first response. So our first response can be grace too, even if there's a mess to clean up afterwards. 
even if there are consequences. There were manifold, huge consequences to the sin of Adam and Eve. Consequences that you and I are still living. And yet God's first response is to extend grace. Imagine, imagine belonging to that people. Imagine belonging to people who look so much like Jesus that that's what it feels like to enter in to that people. Brothers and sisters, that would be like us going back into Eden. In fact, that's chiefly, that's primarily how God's people are described in the Revelation, right? That book that tells us what it's going to be like in the end that we're all too freaked out to read. It tells us that we're going to share a table together. And it tells us that we're going to be able to share a table together without without making one another so angry that we decide to get up and leave. In fact, we'll be so enthralled not only with one another, but more importantly with the God that has brought brought us to one another that we'll share that table forever. It's a table we're never going to want to leave, right? Some of us are going to Thanksgiving going, God, I hope I can make it five minutes. And at that table, we'll be going, God, I just want five more minutes. For all of eternity. And we can have a piece of that now if we live by a spirit into this truth, this reality that salvation is by grace alone and allow it to inform not only what we expect of ourselves, but what we expect of the people around us. Because you're not my savior. He is. And so, brothers and sisters, the truth of salvation by grace alone is just as relevant, just as necessary, just as wonderful as it was 500 years ago, as it was 2,000 years ago, and before even the beginning of time and the formation of the universe when God planned to give it. You see, the God we meet in the Bible is not a passive producer or a director encouraging us to perform better. He's a measureless mystery whose plans never fail. He swirls solar systems into existence out of empty space. He sets princes on thrones and flings kings down in the dust. He has unleashed his kingdom on earth through a virgin's womb and crushed the power of the devil through his cross and empty tomb. And in eternity past, he chose to save undeserving sinners to the praise of his glorious grace. And it is by this grace that he transforms sinners into his beloved adopted children, filling the bank accounts of their identity with all of the goodness of his son. God's grace blossomed in the Garden of Eden for the same reason that grace fills people's lives today. The untamed God gives undeserved grace to unresponsive sinners. And God shows this grace not due to any human deed or desire, but because he has a merciful plan a plan that began before time and required no contribution from us. Grace alone. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And God, we thank you for your marvelous, infinite, matchless grace like we just sang. And we thank you, God, that this marvelous, infinite, matchless grace is freely bestowed on those who believe.
And so, God, we're grateful that we can come and we can sing together of grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. And Lord, we get to come to your table this morning. And we get to look at the broken body and the shed blood. And we know from Ephesians 1 this morning that it is through the blood of Jesus that we have been redeemed, that we have been adopted, that we have been ransomed, that we have been transformed, that we have been made new, that we are in fact new creations. that isn't because we said a great prayer and it isn't because we grew up in the right home or in the right theological camp it isn't because we it's because of Jesus full stop and so we rejoice and we celebrate and we're glad and we pray Father that you would make us a people who are purely dependent upon and purely defined by your grace extended to us in Christ that we would, like the rest of the book of Ephesians, be reminded that we are in Christ, that we've been hidden away in Him, that we are sustained and preserved in Christ, and that all of this comes to us by grace. And so, Lord, we are a grateful people this morning. And we thank You for all good things. In Jesus' name.